So this summer, as you know, we like to take a moment in time to step away from our exposition of the Gospel of Luke to be able to take some time in the Psalms, to understand the Psalms, to uh, get behind the background of the Psalms, to understand to a place that this word that is written within the scriptures that is eternal is the reflection that God understands the perplexities, the oppression, the anguish, and the pain of his people that they experience. That these eternal words penned by real people experienced real problems. We've seen this as we've been going through the life of David this summer. That David, though he had not done a single thing, has experienced much anguish, much pain, because of the hand of a vengeful king who was told by the Lord that his kingship would be removed. And he didn't like that very much. So we've seen David, a young shepherd boy, who was out in the fields tending his sheep. And then when the prophet Samuel comes to anoint the new king, he's forgotten about by his father. A lowly shepherd boy who wasn't even considered among the line of sons that Jesse had. But this young boy would be anointed as king. The prophet Samuel would anoint this shepherd boy who would someday be king. But did David become king in that very moment? No. He held on to a promise that the Lord spoke his word and anointing happened. So not only was there this moment where God had made a promise to David, there was this moment where he actually got to experience, to mark and memorialize that very day when the promise was made to him. So he would go on to do what he currently did. He was a shepherd boy still. He would go into the king, <clears throat> into the palace to soothe the soul of Saul during this time. His brothers would mock him. They would make fun of him. And then an oppression came by the name of Goliath and placed all of Israel in enslavement through fear. But this young shepherd boy who was laughed at whenever he said, I'll face the giant, did not face it by his own strength, did not face it with the knowledge that he had. He makes a declaration that the same God who delivered me from the mouths of bears and lions will deliver us from this oppression. This uncircumcised Philistine. The language that was used to describe Goliath was that of a serpent. And that's very important in biblical theology. The term regarding serpent is the ensnaring one. The one who caused all of humanity to become enslaved to the law of sin and death. The devil himself. He ensnares you, squeezes every ounce of life out of you until you are dead. He's very cunning. So this oppression that happened to Israel was described as the serpent to them. David, a picture of Christ, would go and deliver. Would go and deliver this people from their oppression. The Lord had removed the reproach from Israel. After that, the people were like, yeah, David, you're awesome. Saul was like, mm, he's all right. Saul still did not find this very well. So Saul would make good on his promise and give David Michal, his daughter, as a wife. 
And Jonathan, his own son, would become best friends with David. And David would go out and do battle with the Philistines. And he would have great victories. Saul would hear words of these things and become enraged all the more. So David, who is not yet king, only has a promise, is now being chased by the most powerful person, the commander of the armies of Israel, just because he didn't like the fact that people were singing songs better about David than himself. Saul had promise too, but his promise wasn't nearly as good as David's was. Saul's promise is that he would lose his kingship and all of the house of Saul along with it. David's promise was that he would become king. There's this battle of the promises. So Saul thought he would take it upon himself to fulfill and destroy David's promise so that way he could destroy whatever promise was placed upon him by his own strength. You know what? If I get rid of David, all my problems would be solved. And poor David was chased and chased and chased and chased some more. So much so that Saul used those who loved David to try to get to him. So much so that Saul killed an entire town for giving David and his men some bread while they were out on the run. An entire town, including the priest. He would run off to these cities and help them in the midst of his own distresses. The Lord would deliver that city doing wonderful things. And Saul... I don't know how this guy was even able to walk in public after killing an entire town of people. Israelite people, by the way. And Israelites would continue to help him. Isn't David in the wilderness of Zeph? Doesn't he hide in the caves behind in the wilderness? David experienced much turmoil, much anguish, much fear. He had a lot of reasons to be like, you know what, I think this promise stuff is a bunch of bull. If I'm supposed to be king, why am I out running? Why do I have to get my food from a, from a priest? Why do I have to beg the Philistines to take me in to shelter me so that way I can continue on living? All the while, Saul continues to pursue and continues to pursue. All David had was a promise. So now we're going to move on and we're going to get an update on what's going on in the life of David to where we're going to find ourselves in Psalm 30 today. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Samuel 28. 1 Samuel 28. This is after the situation from last week where David ran off into the arms of the Philistines. So Saul, in pursuit of David decides to consult a medium, a soothsayer, a fortune teller to consult with when the Lord doesn't respond. Check this out, 1 Samuel 28. Saul is just so perplexed by this situation that he has to try to find some way to do this. Now Samuel had died. The prophet Samuel last week we talked about Samuel had died. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. You're like, all right, good job, Saul. Finally doing something good for your people. Well, that wouldn't last very long. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. 
And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. Now the Philistines had gathered all their foes at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped. Oops, gone too far. My apologies. So he goes and consults a medium. Saul not only disguises himself, if you go and read the story, he disguises himself to try to hide who he is, and he goes at night to find this medium, to appeal to the spirits on what he should do. Because the Lord wouldn't answer him. He prayed, and the Lord did not answer him. So he's like, you know what? If God's not really into this, I'm going to go find some, some Baal, some pagan gods who might give me an answer. So he consults a medium. He swears by the Lord in this story. Then the, the medium asks him, hey, I heard you cast us all out, into, out of the land, and you were going to kill us. So are you going to kill me? He goes, no, by the Lord, I will not lay a hand on you. He even uses the Lord himself as a promise to the medium that he wouldn't kill them. Has Saul gone off the deep end? Oh, absolutely. His desire to secure his throne is so strong that he's casting off everything to be able to secure it. David has fled to the Philistines, but they reject him. 1 Samuel 29, starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day? But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? <laughs> They're basically saying, hey, if this guy's on the run from God, he's going to use this opportunity to kill us to get back in good graces with God. Verse 5. Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords did not approve of you. So go back now and go peacefully, and that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So in the midst of his running, Saul consults a medium. David's still on the run. He goes to the Philistines. He helps them out. Interesting that he finds solace 
and the one who oppresses the people because the oppression by Saul is so much greater. So they run to him, and he's actually helping them out, not killing Israelites, but helping them in other ways. And so they reject him for fear that he is going to try to get reconciled back to God. So David's now on the run. Not only is he not welcomed in the land of Judah, he's not welcomed in the the land of the Philistines. So not only his own people are rejecting him, but he's also being rejected by the enemy as well. David is isolated, alone. Him and his men have nothing. They basically are just going to sit down and wait to die because they have absolutely nothing. And then something bad happens. Oh, if that wasn't bad enough. David's wives are captured. His wives are captured by the Amalekites. 1 Samuel 30, starting in verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, and on the third day the Amalekites had made a raid against Negev and against Ziklag, and they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Man, this guy is, he's having it rough. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So even in the midst of not having any place to go, no refuge, no place where they could find some escape from being pursued, his wives then get taken. The whole town gets captured by the Amalekites. So the Philistines aren't causing them problems now. Now it's the Amalekites. This guy is just not catching a break at all. Both of his wives were taken. But I find this absolutely interesting. David inquires of the Lord regarding the rescue. He inquires of the Lord regarding the rescue of these people. He doesn't go, Ugh! I can't believe these guys. Let's go fight. And just goes and does it. He inquires of the Lord first. All he has is a promise. And he's trying not to be foolish. Starting in verse 7. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. And Abiathar uh, brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He said, Pursue. For you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him. And they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 men who mounted camels and fled. 
David recovered all that the Malachites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. What is happening here? David inquires of the Lord regarding the city that was being crushed by the Philistines. The Lord says, go and save them. Even though David was being pursued himself, and he went and he saved those people. Now David inquires of the Lord that all these people, both from the Philistines and from Judah, had been captured along with his wives. He inquires of the Lord, shall I go do this thing? And the Lord says, yes, go do this thing. And what happened? He delivers them all. The Lord is building into David his faithfulness of his promises and of his word. David holds a big promise that he cannot fulfill. A small shepherd boy, he knows how to throw sticks and stones, cannot lead a country. He would require strength, faith, trust, hope. And the Lord is securing in David, hey, you can trust when I say something. Even though, David, you're on the run, even though you're out there and you're being swallowed up by your anguish, this promise will come to pass, and I'll show you. Go and help these people. Go rescue these people. And it happens. So David, again, is being built up. All right, okay, okay. So if this is true and this is true and this is true, that means the anointing stuff is true. Verse 19, nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. This is the second time that the Lord used David to deliver the entirety of either a community of people or whatever. All because he abided by faith. Verse 20. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him, and they said, this is David's spoil. This is David's spoil. Notice that David just doesn't jump into action, but seeks God first. David rescues all that the Amalekites had taken, and this is very important later. We're going to discover how many times David would be utilized in this way. That his life would be placed before as a proclamation of God to the deliverance of people. Which also attests to what Christ will become as the son of David. That promises that were made centuries ago at the very beginning, before the beginning, would come to, uh, come to pass and be fulfilled. So David rescues everything. And then Saul dies. Out of nowhere. Just He just dies. Chapter 31. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua and the, uh, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Listen to the pride of Saul here. Even in the moments of death, listen to his words. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. His pride was so big, he said, no one else has taken my life, I'm going to take it myself. 
Was a promise fulfilled in this moment? Yeah, a big one. Saul, Abinadab, Jonathan, and Malkishua, all sons of Saul. Eliminated. Continuing on. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Okay. That seems like a waste to me, but whatever. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. On the same day together. While David inquired of the Lord to restore life, Saul would cost his men their lives and his own. His pride was so immense that he took his own life rather than being defeated in battle. The Philistines would rejoice and commit the body of Saul to their god, Ashtaroth. They take Saul and say, hey, we're rejoicing over the death of this one. And they place him before the altar, Ashtaroth, which is a Baal, by the way. They rejoiced at the death of Saul. And Saul found his resting home in the land of the enemies. David then mourns the death of both Saul and Jonathan. Listen to the words of David here. We're talking about a guy who was almost killed by Saul several times. And listen to what David's words were. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Wait a second. Is this Saul he's talking about? Yeah. Tell it not to Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there is a shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Your daughters, O Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan, my pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Just stop for a second. I need to make sure I let you know that this is a side note. This text right here, this specific one, is used a lot in the argument regarding homosexual, the difference between homosexuality in relationship and in fornication. They will say, hey, look, see, God wasn't against a homosexual relationship. He's just against the action of the sexual relationship. No. No. That word, love in Hebrew, is very specific. 
There are three words that define love in Hebrew, and each of them have their own characteristics. That word right there is ahava, and that word describes unrelenting, unmoved dedication and commitment. What David just said is Jonathan did not run when trouble came. He came to David when he was affixed, whenever he was afflicted, whenever he had problems and trouble. Michal stayed home. She didn't go with him. This has nothing to do with a relationship that's quote-unquote unbiblical. Just so you guys know. So if anybody tries to come and use this text on you and say, look, look God approved. No, they don't. No, he does not. If they had half a cent to Google a Hebrew word, then they would figure out very quickly, oh, my bad. Anyway, off my soapbox. Next, verse 27. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of the war perished. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. Right after this situation, right after David gives this extol regarding Saul and Jonathan, he is then anointed king of Judah. They have anointed him king of Judah. The reason I didn't say Israel is because guess what? Trouble is a brewing. David is anointed king over Judah, but Israel rejects David. One of, son, of Saul's sons is around. His name is Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth says, don't follow David. And Israel goes, okay. And they follow the son of Saul. So the whole nation is divided. Judah, Israel. And there's much fighting going on between the two nations. That the sons of Saul would battle against the sons of David. Or the house of David. Back and forth. Rah, rah, rah. For a long time. All because one of Saul's sons remained. But guess what happened? War broke out between the house of Saul and the house of David. After some killings of the house of Saul, David is then anointed king of Israel. David fulfilled his promise by not killing Ishbosheth. He told Saul that he would not lay a finger or kill any of his kids. He made that covenant with Saul, remember? And he didn't do it. Somebody else did. So now the whole house of Saul is gone. And after that, David is then kinged, anointed king over all of Israel, Israel and Judah. Both major promises to both kings come to full fulfillment. David had faith because he had seen the glory of the Lord working through every single situation. Saul only found glory in himself and faith in himself, so much so that he took his own life. This is the dichotomy of the heart of worship. That David's heart was so affixed upon what he had been told by the Lord, that he was unmoved, unshaken, able to do things that he shouldn't have been able to do, even at his worst moments. Saul found every opportunity to lift himself up. But his entire house would come to destruction, just as the Lord had promised. 
both to Saul and to David. Once the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, they would make war against him, only to be utterly defeated. The wicked king removed, along with his household, as the Lord had said, the reproach among Israel, the Philistines, had been defeated. And the showcase all that the Lord had done was that the presence of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, was among the people. Everything that the Lord promised he said he would do, he did. And the reason that they rejoiced is because they knew at that moment that God was with them. Fulfilling everything he said he was going to fulfill. So this is where we find ourselves today. Where we're going to see why Psalm 30 was written. 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6 starting in verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now I want you to remember those words, enthroned. Who sits enthroned. Because David's going to make a profound statement here in a moment. Verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, and which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. They rejoiced at the coming of the king. David? No. The one who sits upon the throne, the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember what happened and the reason that Saul was even selected in the first place as king? The people had rejected God as their king. They said, we want a real king like the nations have. And Samuel weeps over this. And the Lord says, do not weep. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me as their king. So what does David do? Even though he's been anointed king and all that, listen to what he says as he brings the Ark of the Covenant. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that, blessing, uh, all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Continuing on. 
And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distinguished among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one, that all the people departed each to his house. Everybody was rejoicing. They were being blessed because the Lord is in the kingdom. They were given wonderful food, and they went home just completely satisfied, rejoiced, blessed, peace, Rain has just come into the, the kingdom. So how does uh, David's uh, wife respond to this? Verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. So not only was he leading the rejoicing of everybody in Israel, he's on a high right now. He's like, oh yeah, I'm going to go home to Cal. We're going to rejoice because the Lord is now in the kingdom. Look what she says. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and says, How the king of Israel honored himself today uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as what? Those three words. Prince over Israel. Did he say king? No. He is not king. He had been simply appointed as given some title, but David does not recognize that he himself is the king of Israel because the true king is now in the kingdom. To the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. God had demonstrated not only to David, but to the entirety of Israel that he is their refuge. Their victory, their hiding place, the rock in whom steadfast love is found. The reason that rejoicing is made possible is because the people had been delivered from their mourning. And there was no other person who understood that more than the one who would be anointed king over Israel, just as God had said. No matter the odds, no matter the circumstances, no matter the pain, the sorrow, the calamity, and the frustration, King David... Prince David, knew the key that unlocked the ability to see the glory of the Lord in his life. Faith. The reason we went through the timeline to meet, to meet us where we're at, our, where we find ourselves this morning, is to show that there was much mourning that David endured. The reason I went through all those First and Second Samuel scriptures is to showcase to you that David had to go a long time before his promise was fulfilled. And it came with a lot of anguish, a lot of pain, a lot of fear, and a lot of learning that would build on the faith that he could stand upon the promises that he had been given. There was nothing else in his life that would indicate that things were going well and that he could achieve the promise. Dave, David found what it took to be the prince of Israel as he calls himself. Faith in the one who turns mourning into dancing and sackcloth into gladness. And David demonstrates the heart of worship when confronted by Michal. 
There was a reason David had for dancing and rejoicing the way that he did. Would you not agree? There was much reason. I don't know if that's grammar correct or not. But he had a lot of reasons to rejoice the way that he did and to dance. Completely abandoned. He had been through so much. Michal stayed at home. This is what we're going to explore today with Psalm 30 because this was written during this situation. What does your heart of worship look like? Like Michal or David? Number one, a heart of gratitude through deliverance. Psalm 30, verse 1 through 3. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. That's the grave. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. David recognizes that the Lord had fulfilled the necessary deliverance by God's own hand and not David's. As God stated about Saul, he also fulfilled. David simply needed to believe by faith that God was capable and faithful to fulfill his promises. This understanding would be pivotal to the covenant David would receive in 2 Samuel 7. Because some promises are going to be made to David by the Lord, a covenant would be made regarding the coming Messiah. David had to build a lot of faith in knowing that God will fulfill his promises so that way the hope of the son of David who will build a house for all of God's people for all of eternity whose throne would never be taken away and a kingdom that would never fall. David would receive those promises from the one whom he knows he can run to for deliverance because he's faithful to his promises. God has blessed you, O saints, with all the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, promises he has made that will be fulfilled. We but need our faith strengthened to abide in his faithfulness. There are promises that you've been given in Christ Jesus to which you can stand and hold firm to. You may be in a time of the wilderness, you may be hungering for something. You may be pursued. You may be vexed. You may be tired. The Lord may be even asking something of you that is extremely difficult. Even while you're going through some stuff. But there are promises that you have in Christ Jesus that will hold you fast. David would realize this. That the heart of worship would require this understanding that gratitude is through deliverance, through vexation, through suffering, that gratitude comes because you've been delivered out of it. God has blessed you, O saints. We find this in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places. Is it some? No. Every, every spiritual blessing is yours. Continuing on. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. You have been anointed with oil. The oil that you've been anointed with, the promise that you've been anointed with is the Holy Spirit. Far greater than the oil that was poured over the head of David. David had a moment where he was secure in everything that God had told him. He had a moment when he was given promises that he would have to build his entire faith upon, that God would fulfill it. You also have been given a moment where you also have been anointed with the Holy Spirit at the moment that you believed, that you received something far greater, a promise that came upon you because you were called, chosen. Your name is written on his hand. Continuing on, he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the majesty of his will, according to his promise, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fulfillment of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Did David understand that reality? And that every step he took, he would inquire of the Lord if he should go do it or not. Because the Lord would tell him what the outcome would be. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. That we are the praise of his glory. Because of Jesus, we have been given an inheritance, a deliverance for eternity. A heart of worship is demonstrated at the recognition of this glorious reality that builds in us faith. And we proclaim through gratitude in remembrance of such reality. In those moments when you look back in your life and you've been delivered out of something. Those are those moments you look back just like David and said, I called out to you and you were there for me. I cried out to you in distress and you heard my cry and you delivered me. So every time that you've experienced something, the Lord says, no, I've got you. Abide by that. Remember on it. Be built up in faith to continue walking forward. So that way when the promises of God come upon you and he calls you to something fantastic and great, you already have the faith built up to know I could walk this. Not because of my strength. Not because I'm a super cool guy or girl. Because the one who called and promised you is the one who's going to carry you through it. A heart of worship is demonstrated by the basis of gratitude as experienced through deliverance. Number two, a heart of thanksgiving through grace. A heart of thanksgiving through grace. Verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 30. 
Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment, and His, and his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. David experienced a lot of darkness. Literally, caves. He experienced a lot of darkness. But when the Lord delivered him from all that darkness by his glorious light, he was dancing. The morning was gone. The weeping in the caves at night, not knowing what the next day may bring, whether Saul would catch up or not, all gone. Did David do it? He simply called out and cried out. And the Lord showed himself in his glory. Thanksgiving is demonstrated through giving gratitude where it belongs and why it is to be given, both in discipline and in mourning. In those moments of darkness, it will not last. For morning is coming. The light of the world has come to call you out of the darkness and into His glorious light. Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 10. For it was fitting that He, being Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The moment, the heart of worship that you have is the reality that Christ adorned himself with the very thing that you and I, we were solved. Just face forward. We were Saul. We love ourselves. We worship ourselves. We think all oh, God's blessing us and all the things that we do. We deserved to fall by our own folly. And all of those who abide in sin will do so. They walk in their sin. They celebrate their sin. They endure their sin. They enjoy their sin. And it will be the sin that they carry that will bring death to them. A heart of thanksgiving, a heart of worship based on thanksgiving is through grace. But those moments in your life whenever you need a time to be snatched from the fire. A time whenever you need to be set aright. A time that causes everything within your soul to move towards God. Hardship, struggle, discipline. Do you guys remember what happened to David whenever he snipped off the corner of Saul's garment? Immediately God pricked his heart. And David realized, I shouldn't have done that. That was grace. 
not only for David, but also for Saul. So we abide in it. We relish in it. We give thanksgiving and gratitude because of it. And in those moments when you're snatched from the fire, when you're standing affixed on solid ground, looking back to the, to the death to which you were supposed to go, there's nothing else your heart is able to do besides rejoice and give thanksgiving. Those moments when you say, that bottle should have killed me, but it didn't. Those stupid mistakes I made, I could have killed myself or others, but it didn't. I should have lost my family, but he didn't. He kept me from it, delivered me. Those moments of discipline are utter grace to you. Endure it, enjoy it, and be grateful for it. Number three, a heart of repentance through discipline. A heart of repentance through discipline. Uh, verses six and seven. As for me, I said in my prosperity, this is David, I shall never be moved by your favor, O Lord. You made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. David had a moment to where he thought, oh, look at me. I'm the, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. I'm going to be king. He saw in his prosperity, hey, I'm going to be just fine. And the Lord allowed him to stand strong. But the Lord turned his face from him. And that is where David realized that his standingness to himself has nothing to do with the reflection of his walk with God. That his ability to feel successful, that your job's going right, that your life is going right, is not an affinity for you to say, oh, this is the path for me. Oh, man, I'm doing good. In your not-so-best moments, we as his children will receive grace when we need it most. We're, uh, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 3. Sometimes we need discipline. Sometimes we need to be brought back from ourselves. Sometimes our souls need to feel like the absence of the Lord so that we are drawn to him. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. This is Jesus so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is talking about you being in the midst of struggle and discipline and hardship. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus, affixed with the overcoming of temptation in the garden, bled, uh, sweated drops of blood. The writer of Hebrews hears is, Have you resisted sin to that extent? With your struggle with it, continuing on. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary and reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children 
and not sons. So if the Lord's allowing you to revel in your own life, in your own self, that you have no need of God in this moment, I'm doing just fine. That should scare you that your heart is no longer drawn to Him, needing Him, satisfied in Him, built up in faith by Him. Because those who are not disciplined are illegitimate. Continuing on. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What is the Hebrew author saying to you right now? That your discipline is to share in His holiness that you may walk in righteousness' sake, that you are molded more and more into the image of Christ. That is utter grace. That he would snatch you and say, no son, come this way. That's dangerous. Continuing on. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Rather be healed. Discipline is designed for guidance. Discipline differs from punishment. For punishment is demonstrated through anger, but discipline is demonstrated through love. David's heart fell upon his own accomplishments away from the Lord, and David recognized the need for dismay that he may felt that he felt because of the Lord because of his heart's turning. David needed to be reminded why his mountain stood tall in the first place. The reason David had anything, he was a shepherd boy who was even forgotten about his father. The reason his mountain stood tall is all because of the Lord in the first place. David needed to be reminded of that. Sometimes we feel a little pain in our sins, so we too become dismayed that repentance is possible. The rescued sheep realizes that the danger they put themselves into is not the place that they should be going. You know what's interesting about sheep and shepherds? Their staff on the end of it has a hook like this. You've probably seen Christmas pageant plays with the kids and they're coming down with the fake beards and the little staff. That hook on the end, do you know what that's for? Pulling them from danger. Don't go towards that viper. Don't go towards that pit. Stay away from that cliff edge. Do you think the sheep are like, hmm, that's soft? Absolutely not. Bruising can happen. It may hurt for a little while. But that pain, by grace, is far greater than you going off that edge than you being completely destroyed by the serpent. Name what it is, whatever you want. Porn, drugs, alcohol, lying, selfishness, pride, whatever sin you want to think of, if you're not feeling the pain of stay away from that, stay away from that, you're going to be consumed by it. Vipers wait in weeds for sheep to come by, sniffing, trying to find greener grass. And they get bit and they're done. 
Thank God that we have a shepherd who pulls us away in discipline and says, stay away from that. Stay away from there. Sometimes we feel a little pain in our sin. Gratitude is found in the hearts of those who heed the discipline and the deliverance from destruction. Discipline for repentance is grace extended as the staff. If grace is not extended, destruction surely awaits our own decisions. A heart of worship is demonstrated in our thankfulness and discipline that leads us into repentance. A recognition of the good shepherd that retrieves us from the destruction and sets us upon the solid and narrow path of righteousness. Number four. Number four. A heart of prayer through humility. A heart of prayer through humility. Verses 8 through 10 in Psalm 30. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. What is David asking for? Be faithful to your promises. Because if I die, all those promises mean nothing. Even though I'm a dum-dum. Even though I mess up. Even though I fall and put myself in unfavorable places and unfavorable positions... Save me for your name's sake. Because I'm the dumb dumb who got here. A heart of prayer through humility. David recognized from where he came. He was a shepherd boy who was forgotten by his own father. He described himself to Saul as a dog and a flea. The only reason David had any value is because the Lord had chosen him, anointed him, delivered him, placed his own name on David through the prophet Samuel. So the only plea that David had to approach God for mercy is based upon God alone. David was nothing, nobody. God says, you're mine, and this is who you're going to be. Is that you this morning in the heart of worship? That you were one affixed to destruction. Your life was going in a path that you know was going to end. And it was going to cause shame upon you. Bring death to you. You weren't noticed by anybody. Nobody cared. The Lord says, I do. I know your name. And your name is now written on my hand. And then upon my heart. I care. You may be just a simple shepherd boy to them, not worthy of anything, a dog and a flea, but to me, you're a point of my affection. Worthy, because of Christ, to be adorned in love and lavished in mercy. You have been chosen, you have been anointed. You have been delivered. You have been called. You have value. Immense and eternal value in Christ. You receive every spiritual blessing. You will be secured in eternity in his kingdom forever. And he knows your name. So who cares if you're a shepherd boy? The God of the heavens who created that all, everything knows my name and has called it.
am anointed by him. I have everything I need. First Sam, or First Timothy chapter 1. Paul recognizes the very reason he himself received mercy. He's writing to young Timothy. This is what he writes. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Through formerly I was a blasphemer, prosecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You once were something, but now you're His. People might try to give you a label and want you to have it stick the rest of your life. I remember when. Oh, you're a... No. I'm a child of God. I'm anointed by Him. Guided by Him. Sustained by Him. Delighted in Him. He knows my name. And the one who sits in heaven for all of eternity enthroned is the only one I care about who sees value in me. I once was those things, but no more. Think about your life before Christ. What was it within you that would merit your salvation? Was it not through pure grace? Was it not through the demonstration of God on what love looks like that while we were still yet sinners, still in the act of it, and continue to do it, Christ died for us. A heart of worship recognizes that the reason we have any value and purpose in this life is that all is because of the one who has called us by name, anointed us, delivered us, loved us, and placed himself within us through the Holy Spirit. We were dead in our sins, but God, being rich in mercy, saved us. A heart of worship is a heart of prayer through humility. Recognizing what we once were, but also recognizing who we are now. Number five, a heart of rejoicing through glory. A heart of rejoicing through glory. Verses 11 and 12. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Let's stop right there for a moment. Can we just acknowledge the fact that David just blamed God for his clothes coming off while he was dancing? You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me in gladness. That's a cheap shot. Verse 11. We'll go back to verse 11. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Sackcloth is what you put on in the midst of mourning. If any of you, if you choose to do so, uh, uh, watch The Chosen, there's this moment where, um, I believe Nathaniel takes some ashes from his plans and dumps them on his head. For those of you who watch that, that's what that means. I am as one dead. So adorning yourself with sackcloth is saying, my sorrow is so heavy, I'm as one dead. Continuing on, verse 12. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. David is now in a place of overwhelming joy and gratitude. He danced and sung praises with all his might, the scripture says. He was willing to look even more contemptible for the sake of worship and rejoicing. 
A man who has been pursued by a vengeful king, witnessed slaughtered at the king's hand, ran to the wilderness, had twice the opportunity to rid himself of Saul, yet did not, and had to rescue his wives from his enemies, is now living in the promises of God to him because God's might, power, and steadfast faithfulness. The reason he gets to go home rejoicing in the first place is all because God delivered him. What else was David to do? What else would you do but rejoice when delivered from such sorrow and mourning? John 4, I want to quickly talk about a woman who had very much a reason to rejoice. Very much a reason to go and testify to what she had experienced. Starting in verse 13, this is the, uh, Jesus and the woman at the well. The woman at the well would go there at noonday to draw water. Why? Because nobody else was there. Do you want to know why? It's because she carried shame. And Jesus revealed that shame to her. Not because he was trying to be cruel, but he wanted to attest to her something. Let's go. Uh, verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. So Jesus asked the young woman to draw him some water. She says, well, why don't you draw it yourself? You know, and um, we come here and there was this conversation regarding water. And he says that if you come and drink the water that I'm giving you, He'll never thirst again. Verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she's saying, Hey, can you deliver me from my shame? This had nothing to do with water. She wanted something that would require her to not have to go out to draw water in the first place. She wanted her shame removed. Deep conversation about water, huh? Jesus said to, said to her, go call your husband and, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. You have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What have you said? What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. He's talking about himself. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Spirit, truth. Currently seeking, verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. The first revelation in scripture of Jesus proclaiming to be Messiah is to a Samaritan woman. Right here. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. A woman who had carried shame for years, not finding a home, not finding a place, bouncing to find some sort of provision in this life from husband to husband to husband to husband, 
only for her to carry more and more shame because she did things that she's not proud of. And Jesus meets her and says, hey, I know this about you. And she is looking for a greater hope. I need something more than going to this mountain or that mountain to worship. I'm not even allowed in there. So how am I supposed to be redeemed from my shame? How can I be rid myself of this shame if I'm not even allowed in the temple? Jesus said, you're not going to worship here or there. You're going to worship in spirit and truth. She goes, oh, this is messianic language. I know the Messiah is coming. He just revealed himself to her. Continuing on, I want, to list, I want you all to listen what happened. After Jesus revealed himself to this woman, what she goes and does on this reality that she is going to have her shame removed and that her reconciliation to God is absolutely possible. John 4, verses 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. This is what she said. He told me all that I ever did. She needed something more than water. She needed something more than what her life looked like. The decisions that she had made. And Jesus revealed that he is the one who is going to remove the shame, bring the living water, and reconcile people back to God. And what did she do? She couldn't help but go tell other people about it. This is in Samaria. These are people rejected by Israel. Listen, continuing on. So when the Samaritans came to him and they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. God has displayed his glory in your life. You have been given reasons for dancing and rejoicing. David's dancing and rejoicing spurned the whole of Israel to be blessed and rejoiced with him. Michal is more worried about how David looked rather than the reason for his rejoicing. From mourning into dancing, your testimony carries weight in the kingdom of God. Hope is found in the words of those who have tasted and saw that the Lord is good. Your testimony helps bear witness to the truth of God's word and the promises that he made in Christ Jesus. Do you notice what they said there? We no longer believe because you told us. We believe because we heard. And we know that he is the savior of the world. Everything that you've experienced in your life is a ray of light in a dark world. The shame that you once carried that you used to have to cover. This is not me. This is not me. I hope they don't see me. I hope they don't talk to me is now redemption that you can do nothing but testify about it. I was once this and now I'm this. And people go, huh, you were, huh? And that thus introduces them to the good news of the gospel too. Her willingness to go and testify the things that she experienced out of pure gratitude is what brought many of Samaritans to glory in Christ. Because they believed in his word. A heart of worship is one who rejoices in such a manner that it testifies to those whose souls are thirsty to come and drink the living water of Christ. People will want to know the reason for your rejoicing and dancing. 
And we are, both, we are to both lead others into the heart of worship as well as display the glory of God as a testimony of his faithfulness and love. So in closing, I only have a question for you. Will you rejoice and dance like David in the Lord and his glory? Or will you seek to squash the heart of worship like Michal? Because church, we have a responsibility in the same way that God has revealed His glory in your life, as He did David, and as He did the woman at the well, we too should be rejoicing and dancing. That we get to engage in this world of darkness with gladness. That our mourning has been changed. Our sackcloth is no longer there. That joy comes in the morning. We have a hope, and the rest of the world needs to know it and see it too. So that question, Ephesians 5, I close with this charge from the scriptures. And do not get drunk with wine, for it is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Notice it's not just hymns in there. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. The reason you all can build each other up in faith and endure what you have endured is because you've experienced some stuff too. And so so have they. And you can encourage each other in the Lord to continue on. So will you be dancing or will you seek to squash the heart of worship? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, how great your might is and oh, how great the extent of your salvation is to all of us. That while though we were headed for destruction, you out of your grace and mercy have snatched us from the fire and from death. That you have revealed the good news of the gospel to us by grace. And that we had by faith been able to receive it through the Holy Spirit. To be anointed and chosen and redeemed and reconciled. Giving all the spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. And all the promises to which you have going to fulfill in our lives. That we have an ability to have a heart of worship. To adorn you. To praise you. To find thanksgiving and discipline. That we are your sheep who rejoice over the, the presence of the shepherd. That we can't help but dance over the deliverances that we have seen. The afflictions that we carry. The darkness that we have seen with our own eyes. And oh how bright the light is when the night is most darkest. We can't help but rejoice to know that you're sitting on your throne. That you have fixed the days. That you guide our steps. That mercy and grace abound in us. That love is possible because of Christ Jesus. May our hearts be overflowing with praise. May we build each other up with spiritual songs to encourage one another. Whenever we're in mourning, you turn them into dancing. So Lord, may we rejoice because the King is on his throne. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.